0: The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Rev. Dr. Scott Black Johnston in the sanctuary of Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with us every Sunday in person or on live stream. For details, go to FAPC.org. And now, here's Rev. Dr. Scott Black Johnston. Throughout the season of Lent, Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church is going to consider stories of sacred resilience. What is a story of sacred resilience? Well, to start, they are stories that revolve around struggle. They are accounts of torment, turmoil, and straight up tragedy. They are hard knock stories. They are stories of how people respond to hard knocks out of their faith. Now does this mean that we're going to spend Lent reading stories about people who triumph over tremendous adversity? Not exactly. Not quite. I'm hoping that we can make an important distinction right out of the gate. Not all adversity can be overcome, at least not in the, the way that so many self-help books suggest. I have a dear friend, a, a brilliant theologian, who sometimes watches these worship services on live stream. She has Parkinson's, a degenerative disorder of the central nervous system It's a brutal disease. I so wish that I could wave a wand and make it go away, but I cannot. Why do I mention my friend? Because we all know that resilience has got to mean more than experiencing something bad and then gritting your teeth, dusting yourself off, and getting right back to the life that you are living before the bad thing happened. Back in January, as Louisa observed, Kate Bowler was our Gatto lecturer. Kate is a witty and very honest theologian. Part of her, her life's work is to disabuse people of the painful cliche, everything happens for a reason. To do so, Bowler has taken a set of shears to this lie, reducing the phrase to two less rosy, but more true words. Everything happens, and everything really does happen. Along the way, some of the everything that we experience in this life, falls into the skin knee category. We stumble, our knee hurts for a bit, but after a few weeks, the scab falls off and the trauma of the moment is a distant memory. But on the other hand, some of the everything that happens to us is not like a skinned knee, not at all. Many of life's biggest challenges do not resolve in the way that we would hope. The scab becomes a scar. We cannot forget the bad thing that happened. Life's hardest knocks change us. They leave permanent marks. So what then is a story of resilience? (laughs) Good question, big question, a mission critical question, for anyone seeking to navigate this rough and tumble life. And it's the question that we are going to try and answer this Lent. Each Sunday, we're going to read a story from scripture in which a person or a community faces some sort of peril. It could be a challenge to a person's ego. It could be the erosion of a community's hope. It could be a threat to a person's life and breath. And each week we're going to peer closely at these stories looking for signs of sacred resilience. Do stories of resilience share anything in common? I think our faith answers yes to this question. I think there's a sort of bedrock conviction that gives rise to sacred resilience. And and I think that the poet Maya Angelou, the the author of I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, points us in the direction of this foundational attitude. Angelou is, is famous for writing about the courage and fortitude that it takes to live a life of of passion, compassion, humor, and style, despite facing corrosive prejudice and personal challenge. In, In a letter to her daughter, Angelou describes her basic attitude toward life's hardships in this way. I can be changed by what happens to me, but I refuse to be reduced by it." I like that. Changed, but not reduced. Changed, but not made less. Changed, but always and forever a child of God. My friends, this Lent, we're going to explore what the good book has to teach us about living a life of resilience and hope in this crazy hard world. And today we're going to start down that road by listening together to a story that Christians all over the world are hearing on this first Sunday in the season of Lent. The story of Jesus fasting in the wilderness and being tempted by the devil. Listen now for God's word to you, as it echoes to us from the fourth chapter of Luke, beginning with the first verse. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will protect. Command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished every test, he departed from him, until an opportune time this is the word of God for you the people of God Amen. thanks be to God so growing up I was a fan of the Looney Tunes <laughs> Bugs Bunny, Yosemite Sam, Wiley E. Coyote, the road runner were fairly typical after school, yes, mom, my homework's done fair. The cartoons were funny, extremely violent, and more often than not, a sort of silly attempt to grapple with a moral question. Should I steal the farmer's carrot? Should I take revenge on that extremely annoying rabbit? (laughs) These moral dilemmas often played out in a familiar way. As a character begins to ponder what ethical path to take, a cartoon angel would appear whispering into the duck or rabbit or coyote's ear. And at the same time, on the opposite shoulder, a cartoon devil would appear whispering into the character's other ear. Down through the years, this, this visual mechanism has been used countless times by other animators. Homer Simpson has frequent conversations with the angel and the devil on his shoulders. Margot, one of the children in the Despicable Me movies does the same and, and I've just totally lost count of the Disney characters who have listened to the point and counterpoint offered by shoulder devils and shoulder angels. So I got so interested in all this that this past week I decided I was going to figure out when and where this evocative imagery started. Many historical scholars actually have tried to track this down and it turns out that the image of the angel on your shoulder can be traced back to medieval morality plays and specifically to the oldest fully intact manuscript that we have of a medieval morality play, The Castle of Perseverance. The next time you visit DC, check out the Folger Shakespeare Library. They actually have an edition of The Castle of Perseverance that comes from 1440. But I digress. The Castle of Perseverance tells the tale of an individual, not so creatively named humanum. (laughs) And humanum ignores the counsel of a good angel to embrace the advice of a bad angel and thus falls into a life of sin. The castle of perseverance paints a vivid picture of the way in which people weigh the consequences of their ethical actions. And and literary scholars say this is the first record that we have of the angel on a person's shoulder trope, or is it? (laughs) Oh, I know today's text doesn't picture the devil as a tiny figure with a pitchfork sitting on our Lord's shoulder. In fact, The good book doesn't say anything about the devil's appearance or his location in this story. And maybe, maybe that's the point. Christ hears the voice of the tempter the exact same way we hear the voice of temptation in the quiet of his thoughts at the end of a hard day. There's a lot going on in this fantastic story, but for our purposes, And out of respect for your afternoon plans, let's focus on three things. First, as Luke tells it, the story of Christ's temptation occurs over the course of his 40-day fast. And this doesn't really surprise us, does it? I mean, aren't we most vulnerable to temptation, to the whispers of dark possibilities, or to just plain grumpy thinking when we're tired, or hungry, or emotionally spent? It's it's when our reserves are low that we can most clearly hear the devil's whispers. Life is tough, isn't it? It's been unfair to you really unfair. Nobody sees how unfair it's been. Well, you know what? It's time to push back. Use your elbows. Grab what's yours. You want some bread? Take it. You want power? Go ahead. You deserve it. Grab it. These whispers creep up on Jesus in the midst of his 40 days of deprivation, sitting in the wilderness, his stomach growling, contemplating his circumstances, his place in the world. Our first takeaway from this story is clear. Temptation leverages human vulnerability. Temptation plays dirty. The second thing that we might notice in this story looks to be a, a departure from the angel on one shoulder, devil on the other trope. In, in this passage, we hear the devil whispering in Christ's ear, but, but, but where's the representative from the other team? Where's, where's the angel offering a counter perspective? Now to answer those questions, we may need to, to zoom back a bit. According to Luke, before the devil shows up, before the prince of darkness plays tour guide, flying Christ around, offering him authority and power over all people, before the devil makes his grand play, it's Christ's spirit that does the leading. It was God's spirit who, who planned the original trip, it's, it's right there in the first verse. Christ, full of the Spirit, is led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he's tempted by the devil. Now, what does that little detail have to do with anything? One of the best parts of divinity school, in my opinion, is the conversations that seminarians have late at night. After sharing pizza and a few beverages, peculiar and fascinating questions can come tumbling out. I remember vividly the night my friend David, a Methodist asked, why do you think, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches the, the disciples to pray, lead us not into temptation? Is, is Jesus suggesting that God could lead, does lead people into temptation? I mean, why would God do that? Why do we ask God, over and over, week after week, not to lead us into temptation? Today's text, I think, has an answer. According to Luke, Jesus was led by the Spirit of God to a place where he was tempted. The Gospels suggest that Christ's 40 days in the wilderness were a trial, a hard thing, a a ring out the soul kind of experience. Uh, Maybe, maybe, The Lord's Prayer is simply Jesus' way of saying, I get it. And friends, it's okay to pray and to ask God not to have to do certain things, not to go through certain trials. And there is, of course, at least one occasion when Jesus does exactly that. Do you remember the scene in the garden before the events of Holy Week, before the trial and the crucifixion? What does Jesus do in the garden? He prays that the unfathomably hard path that is opening before him might be avoided. Please take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. In a similar manner, the Lord's prayer pleads, lead me not into the time of trial. But, But then, like the prayer in the garden, the Lord's prayer pivots. It nods to the fact that there are moments when we cannot avoid wrestling with darkness. So the prayer continues, but deliver us from evil. If life's awful moments cannot be sidestepped, then God please deliver us from evil. These surprising prayers prompt a third and and final set of questions. For today's text. Does the spirit abandon our Lord in the desert? Is the spirit kind of like a a drill sergeant dumping Jesus in a hard place, toughening him up, preparing Christ for the the loneliness and the the hard knocks of, of life and ministry? That's actually not how I read the text. And maybe I'm too influenced by those medieval morality plays, but I don't think the spirit drives Jesus out to a place of temptation and then forsakes him. It looks to me like the spirit hangs around, a source of resilience, a voice whispering into Christ's other ear during a trying time. Why do I say this? What does it look like for God's spirit to stick around when things get tough? In her book, Operating Instructions, Anne Lamott tells the story of a friend of hers, a, a, a new mother, who takes her one-year-old son on a work trip to Lake Tahoe. They were staying in a B&B by the lake. And Lamont describes the rental apartment her friend was in in this way. Of course, since it's such a hotbed of gambling, all the rooms are equipped with these curtains and shades that, that block out every speck of light so you can stay up all night in the casinos and then sleep all day. One afternoon, my friend takes her baby and puts him in his playpen in one of these rooms in the pitch dark and then goes back to her laptop to do some work. A few minutes later, she heard him knocking on the door from inside the room and she got up knowing that he'd crawled out of his playpen. She went to put him down again, but when she got to the door, she found that he'd locked it. He'd somehow managed to push in that little button on the doorknob. So he's calling out to her, mommy, mommy. And she's saying, jiggle the doorknob, darling. And after a moment, it became clear to him that his mother could not open the door and the panic set in. He began sobbing. So my friend ran around like crazy, trying everything possible, trying to get the front door key to work on the knob. That didn't work. Calling the rental agency, where she left a message on a machine. Calling the manager of the condominium complex, where she left another message. And then between the calls, running back to check on her son. And there he was in the dark, this terrified little boy. And finally, she did the only thing that she, she could think of, which was to slide her fingers underneath the door where there, there was a little gap. And, and she kept telling him over and over again, bend down and, and, and find my fingers. And, and finally, somehow he did. So they stayed like that for a really long time on the floor, him holding onto her fingers in the dark. And he stopped crying. Part part of her wanted to get up and go call the fire department at that point, but she felt like this contact was the most important thing. She kept saying every once in a while, can you, can you try jiggling the knob a little bit? And he would get up and jiggle the knob, and after about a half hour or so, it finally popped open. Do you see why I might compare that story to Jesus in the wilderness. When times are tough, all sorts of different voices start speaking to us. Voices in the dark, voices from out there, voices from in here. My friends, I wonder if the path to resilience begins when we start listening to the right voices, the angel on our shoulder, the spirit with us in the wilderness, the one saying, I know this is hard, I know this is scary, the one whispering under the door of our fears, I am here, I have got you, I'm going to stay here with you. I'm going to deliver you from evil. Members of the beloved community, be resilient in your faith. Listen to the right voices. Have courage. Hold fast to what is good. Do not return evil for evil strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, help the suffering, honor all people, love and serve the Lord. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and given you a measure of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you would like to make a donation to support this audio ministry, please visit FAPC.org give. Thank you and blessings to you on this day.